0: morning, if you want to take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 11, we'll be reading from there in just a moment. Uh, To Richard's comment, I I can't say that I will get it down to to five or six minutes, uh, but I'll try to get as close to there as I can. Uh, in, In Mark chapter 11, as we've been studying through the book of Mark, i I know I say this every time we study through a book. It's quickly becoming my favorite book of the Bible, and I think that's by design. That as we study through, Are we not turned on. Oh. <laughs> there we go. Now you can hear me. So as we study through the, the, the book of Mark, uh, the time that we spend in God's Word, I, by design, it is meant to, to push us and provoke us and change us. Uh, Every book that, we, that, that, that I look at, it, it's, it's impossible for me not to find something in it that says, Kyle, you need to work more on this. Kyle, you need to be better at this. And, and the book of Mark has been just the same. Constantly provoking me to change my view of, of the Christ. Looking to Jesus and seeing who He truly is and how that has an impact on my life. That's what the Bible is doing. From the beginning it is intended to show in us that we are the creation of God and by that we have a response to Him that is correct and a response to Him that is incorrect. And in the book of Mark in chapter 11, we're going to see those responses uh, in very vivid and illustrated ways. And I hope that as as we go through this, I hope that as we look at this passage... We don't make the mistake that we oftentimes do. Oftentimes you read Mark 11 and you immediately think the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. This is what the book is about. This is what the chapter is about. And I want to challenge your view on that today that the book or this chapter, chapter 11, is about much more than just Jesus coming in. That we need to slow down and not zip past all of this because there's a great lesson that we're learning that is going to be there to show us that not only is Jesus is the king, but Jesus is the owner of a house of prayer. And that needs to mean something to me. So we'll get to that in just a moment. Let's begin in chapter 11, verse 1. And let's read there together about the arrival of the king. Now, when they drew near, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered, in it, entered it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately He will send it here. So when they went their way, they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosening the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded So they let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, He sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest." And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when He looked around at all things as the hour was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is met with great excitement. And it's the excitement that should be expected from the arrival of a king. People shouting out these phrases, throwing down their clothes, uh, riding in on this donkey. That is all symbolic of a king entering his home And it is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew chapter 21, Matthew is showing this. Matthew records Zechariah chapter 9. And in verse 9, in fact, if you'll flip over there just um, to recall that, that passage, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey." Matthew talks about this and about how important this is. The the, the prophecy is being fulfilled in front of you. Mark doesn't record any of it. As we've noted throughout the book of Mark, Mark has a different purpose. Now Mark is going to talk a lot about prophecy, but he's not going to reference it. He's going to show how a lot of prophecy is fulfilled, but he's not pointing back because he's talking to a different audience. Again, he needs them to see something about Jesus he doesn't record this because He wants them to know not that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Yes, He did. But that Jesus is in control. He's the one calling the shots as He comes in. Notice what happens. They're coming in and Jesus says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go ahead and you're going to go find this donkey tied up and you're going to untie it and someone is going to ask you, what are you doing? And you're going to tell them this and then they're going to let you go. That is very, very, very specific. What Jesus tells them: If someone calls me and says, "Kyle, we're going to the next town. I want you to go get a place together for me." Okay. If they call me and say, "Kyle, I want you to go get a place together, and here's how I want you to do it, and when you do it, this is going to happen, and this is what you're going to say, and then they're going to say, and basically record your conversation for you before you even leave their presence." I'm thinking, "Have you planned this? What, what, what are you? What are you? Why are you telling me all this information?" Jesus has a purpose. Mark has a purpose. He wants us to know Jesus is fully in control. When He says it, it happens. And it's exactly what happens. They, if we notice it, they go on. They, they go and find the donkey. They start untying it. The people ask Him. They tell Him. The people send them. That's a motif. We need to see that. There is a motif that runs through this chapter. It's interwoven into it that is being recorded over and over again. And yes, we, we tend to miss it. But we need not to, because we are trying to be taught by Mark that Jesus has authority. And He does. Now I want you to notice what happens after this as He goes on. He comes into the city, and you have the people shouting out, Hosanna. Now I don't know about you, but I've always pictured this as the arrival of Jesus, and just all of the Jews in Jerusalem flock to Him to shout out, Hosanna. That's not really what Mark records, is it? Mark says those that went before Him and those who follow Him shout, Hosanna. I picture the crowd that is with Him as He makes His way into the city. These are the ones that are taking off their their clothes. These are the ones that are laying down the leafy branches for for the the colt to walk around. And they're shouting this phrase, Hosanna. Understanding that phrase is very important for us to see why this picture is being painted for us. What they are doing is they are quoting Psalm 118. Verses 25-27. through And that word, Hosanna, is not just a word of praise. They're not just saying, praise Him, He's here. It's a word of praise connected to salvation. When I've been saved from my enemy, praise my Savior. So as He comes into the town, they are literally shouting out, salvation has come. Salvation is here. The King is here. The kingdom is here. Ultimate salvation has arrived. And then Mark does something that no other gospel does. Every other gospel jumps right in to either verse 12 or verse 15. But Mark throws in verse 11. Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and we had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's kind of anticlimactic. You never noticed that? Jesus comes into Jerusalem and you have this crowd of people with him shouting out hosannas. The king has come. And when he gets to the temple, he just kind of looks around. There's no celebration. There's no fireworks. There's no amazing thing happening. He just kind of looks around. It's late. It almost gets the picture that it's empty. And he goes on his way to Bethany. i got to say, it's kind of a weird way to end this triumphant entry into Jerusalem with this scene at the temple. But it's an extremely important scene because you have to remember what Mark is doing. From the very beginning, his purpose of his gospel begins with recording what John was saying in the wilderness. You remember John quotes both Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 when he says that he has come to prepare a way. And just in case you've forgotten, because if you're like me, I, we are probably woefully unstudied in the Minor Prophets. So just in case you've forgotten what Malachi 3:1 says, I wanted to put it on the board for you. Malachi 3.1 through 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is Mark 1 to Mark 11. This is being fulfilled in their life. Mark 1, John the Baptist is that messenger saying, Get ready, the Lord is coming. Why? Because suddenly he's going to come to his temple, and in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, it finally happens. Jesus comes to his temple. But what happens next is verses two through three. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. He will set as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. This is setting up the stage for what's about to happen in the rest of the chapter. Prophecy is still being fulfilled and Mark is recording this passage to show us what happened in Malachi, or what, what happened with Jesus coming to the temple and finding nothing there, not finding people shouting his praises, not finding the crowds there ready to accept him as the king, <coughs> that has a ramification in their lives. And maybe we'd be quick to say, you know, something else happened in Mark 11, and that is that he got there and it was late. What did Jesus really expect at a late hour? Did he expect people to be shouting and and praising him as he came into his temple when it was so late? Well, I'll tell you exactly what Jesus expected as as we look into the next section of Scripture, verses 12 through 14. Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. In the first 11 verses, we have the arrival of the king. These next couple of verses, we see his prophecy. Prophecy. And that prophecy needs to mean a whole lot more to us than just this tree's not going to have fruit on it anymore. We need to see that. that, And throughout the Scriptures, we see something very important with fig trees. I don't want you to make a mistake here. I don't want you to make a mistake in looking at this picture and go, well, you know, Jesus is at a long trip and this is a little bit out of character for Him to get mad at a tree out of season and, and curse it. So Jesus obviously must have been a little hangry at this point. That's the reason why we've all been there. We've all been angry because we're so hungry, and when there's nothing to provide it, and so we're going to lash out. That's what Jesus is doing. No, don't make that mistake. Also, don't make the mistake that the scholars, many scholars have made trying to say, well, there's a late season and an early season, and so it is completely acceptable for Jesus to to want fruit from this, even though it says it's out of season, Because it was just out of that late or out of that early season. But there's another season, so it's acceptable. We don't need to justify this. We don't need to try to make this fit human thinking. This is the Son of God. And when He says that He comes in and He's looking for fruit and it's out of season, that's exactly what happened. There was not the season for figs. There should be no expectation for there to be figs from a human standpoint. But the Creator comes and He wants figs on this tree. When is it out of season for the Creator? You go back to Malachi. Malachi is saying suddenly the Lord is coming to His temple. And now He has done that. And what He found was an empty temple. He found nothing of of report for Mark to record. We get the same picture here. He comes and He looks at a fig tree. And there is no figs on it. And I want you to think about something. He is the creator of all life on earth. He created every tree on this planet. Not only that, He created that tree. He is responsible for that tree being there. He knows what it's capable of. He knows what to expect from it. And so when we read that and we connect these things together, we need to immediately start going, oh, I see what's happening here. Prophecy is happening here. That's what's going on. We sometimes forget that Jesus was not just the king. He was a prophet as well. And the fig tree throughout history is treated as prophecy. In Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah uses the, the illustration given to him by God of a basket of figs to refer to Judah as they're carried away to Babylonian captivity. He says, those of you that are going to be carried away into captivity, you are these good figs. That God is doing this for your goodness so that you will will survive this and that you will come and you will glorify His name. But those who remain are the bad figs, the princes and the kings. You are are going to stay here in Judah. You're going to be thought of as, as the lucky ones, but really what's going to happen is you're going to eventually get wiped out and get killed. And it's those people that got taken away that are going to come back and be the remnant that are in the land. There, we see figs representing the people of God. In Joel chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, God uses fig trees along with grapevines and apple trees and many other fruits to show the spiritual circumstances of the people, that they had become unfruitful. And that's exactly the picture that we start seeing here. This fig tree, upon inspection by Jesus, is shown to lack fruit. That is the spiritual condition of the people as witnessed the day before when Jesus goes into the temple at that late hour. And again, as I said, it was late. But if Jesus expected a fig tree to be fruitful even when it was out of season, then what we see is it's always in season for Christ whenever He demands, for the Creator when He demands fruit. And I want you to see the connection between that and what Timothy is taught by Paul. When Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he says to him, be ready in season and out of season. Always be ready to preach the Word. There's no time when you say, well, I'm I'm not going to say it right now. It's not profitable. It's not comfortable. It's not popular. He says, no, all the time. Be ready to preach the Word. He's playing on the same examples that we see here in Mark chapter 11. And that's exactly what John was telling them. You need to be ready. The king is going to come to his temple suddenly be prepared. In fact, that's where we started at in that that Scripture, in in chapter 1. When you go back to the other accounts, like in Matthew, he tells them not just be ready, he says put on the fruits of repentance. Over and over again. They are being warned, the king is coming, the king will arrive at his temple, and you better be ready. You better be bearing fruit. In Mark 11, now it's happened. He's come, and the scene that he finds is, is rather dismal. And So, so two things are going to happen. Primarily, the royal refiner is about to visit them. As we read on, verses 15-19, through we're going to find Jesus cleansing the temple. Let's read that together. It says, So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And He would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then He taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. As I said, there's two major things that are going on here. The first one is very evident. He's cleansing the temple. Jesus has likely done this before because it's recorded much earlier in other Gospels, so this is likely the second time he's done it. He goes in, he turns over the money changers' tables. He's driving out all the people that are buying and selling. And again, we see prophecy being fulfilled. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21 says, Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now, if you remember who the Canaanites were, the Canaanites were the enemies of God. They were the enemies that He ran out of the land and that the Israelites were to continue to run out of the land of Canaan as He gave it to them as an inheritance, as a promised land. That is the enemy of God. And what is happening here in the fulfillment of this prophecy, it's being shown that these people who claim to be the followers of God, these people who claim to be doing what God wants and trying to tell other people what God wants, they're not followers they're enemies. And that's not going to happen anymore. In fact, Zechariah 9.9 9 is the prophecy of Jesus coming in on the colt. But in verse 8, I believe it applies here as well. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor, shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I have seen with my eyes. We see Jesus here literally seeing with his physical eyes the enemy that has been passing through his house, turning it into this den of thieves, and what does he do to them? Effectively, he announces, guys, the temple is closed for business. It is done. You're not bringing it in anymore. You're not going in and out with all of this merchandise. You can't come back in. And if you notice, if you notice, they get really mad about that. But it's not about him closing the temple. It's not about him turning over their tables. He's a physical guy. He's got to get hungry. He's going to eventually leave. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to set it all right back up. That's not... It's an, it's an inconvenience. It makes them angry. But that's not what they're ready to destroy him over. What they're ready to destroy him over is this right here. Jesus is teaching the fulfillment of prophecy related to the future... Of this temple that they are in. Related to their religion. When he says, this should have been a house of prayer. Mark records a little bit extra. This should have been a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. Everyone should see this as a place to come into contact with God. And that's exactly what it was. In 1 Kings chapter 8. um, Excuse me. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is praying in dedication to the temple. And the whole whole chapter is is given to, to all this information about the temple and what they expect and what they're praying God to do. But I want you to notice in verse 41, he says, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray towards this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. What Solomon was praying is that this temple that we're building which is the way that mankind can approach a holy God, bring His sins before Him, and have those sins forgiven, atoned, covered in the blood of bulls and goats. He said that house is a house for everybody. It is for the world to come to God and find forgiveness. And that's what Jesus says. He says this should have been a house for everybody. This should have been a house that everyone could come to Me. All nations can come to God and find forgiveness. That's what the temple was supposed to be. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you and me. Den of thieves sounds bad. I mean, they were robbing people. They were not just with their, with their money. And, and, and people would come and bring a, a sacrifice and they would say, well... Uh, see, you know, see, you have a Daenerys, so that's worth you know, this amount over here. And then they would make those numbers not the same. We, you know, there's been so many connections to how they've turned that into a den of thieves. But that's not really Jesus' point. Yes, that was going on. That was terrible. It was wicked. It's a sign of them. But what Jesus is really doing is quoting Jeremiah 7. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I even I have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast you out of all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. That's what the Jews know when they hear the phrase den of thieves. They know what Jesus is talking about. They understand what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the time that Jeremiah came and said, you think you're doing what God wants, but God sees the wickedness in your hearts. He sees the wickedness in your lives. So march back over to Shiloh. Do you remember what was there? The tabernacle, the place that bore the name of God, the place where the people met with God and brought their sins to Him, what happened to it in Shiloh? It was destroyed. It was turned to rubble. Not one stone left upon another. Whenever Jesus quotes this, the Jews know exactly what He's saying. He's saying you're a bunch of sinners. You're a bunch of wicked people. And God is coming in judgment of you. He is coming to tear down this temple. Here you think the Messiah is coming to set up a kingdom. He's coming to scatter you across the earth. That's what's coming. And that's what they hear and that's what they understand. And when they understand that, they are infuriated. This is why they seek to kill Him. And ultimately, as I pointed out, as I pointed out, the purpose of this account is to show Jesus is in control. Jesus says, go in, get the donkey. People are going to talk to you. Here's what you're going to say. It's this, and it's what happens. Jesus is telling them, God sees your wickedness and he's going to destroy you. In 70 AD, it happens. It takes a while. It doesn't happen on the, on the time frame that maybe his apostles thought doesn't happen in the time frame that maybe they thought, maybe they thought, that's, that's been forever ago. That ain't going to happen, but it happens. Because when God says it, it's as good as done. But that also means one other thing. What Jesus is saying is, if the temple is gone, the temple is about to be destroyed. Shiloh, remember? How do I get forgiveness? What hope is there for me to ever repent of this? And in that, we see Jesus' final words in this section and His provision. It says in verse 20, In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he shall... Uh, those things He says will be done. He will have whatever He says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will, re- you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. What we need to do and what Mark is drawing our minds back to is to remember who is in control. Jesus spoke about the donkey, it happened. Jesus has now spoke about the temple, it's going to happen. He spoke about the fig tree, and we see the fig tree withered. Jesus over and over and over again is being shown, I am the one in control. And once more we see prophecy being fulfilled. Jeremiah 8, verses 13-14 through 14 says, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. Why do we sit still? Assemble ourselves and let us enter the fortified cities, and let us be silent there, for the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. And maybe some of your other translations, when you read that, instead of saying silence, it talks about being put to death. Instead of saying gall to drink, it says poison. He has taken away from us the means to be fruitful. What hope is there? That's what Jeremiah is talking about. Jesus is about to say something to them that is an answer to that problem. We have to read this in context of what they have just experienced. We have to read these verses with the triumphant entry in mind. We have to read these verses with the con- cleansing of the temple and the cursing that Jesus has just pronounced not only on the temple, but on the fig tree. Judgment is going to be fulfilled. Jesus came. Jesus saw no fruit. Jesus pronounced judgment. It's going to happen. And when Peter sees that, he goes, look, you pronounced judgment on the fig tree and it happened. It happened. What do we do? And Jesus says, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. These powerful, powerful words that he speaks to them. Was the temple closed, which was their access to the Father? Yes. Jesus is effectively announcing it. It's done. This is not how you come to the Father anymore because of your wickedness. This is over. But was all hope lost? No. In fact, that's going to become the message of the followers of Christ as they move forward throughout history. The way that you used to walk, the way that you used to act, the temple that you worshipped in, the traditions of your people, these ways are not going to draw you closer to God. You are in sin, you have to turn from that. You have to turn away from that passage and you have to lead your be led to Christ. There is a new way. There is a new way to receive forgiveness. There is a new way to be found faithful in the eyes of God, and it comes through his son Jesus Christ. That's the message that Stephen preached. And he gave his life up to preach that message to the Jews. That's the message that his apostles preached both to the Jews and Gentiles alike. There is a new way. And Jesus is telling them, you have to have faith and you have to pray and you have to forgive. We need to see this for what it is. In this passage, I have heard this passage misused time and time again. You've maybe heard this passage misused as well. If you you pray for something and you just believe hard enough, whatever it is, God is going to give it to you. You want that job? All you've got to do is pray to God and believe that He's going to give it to you and He's going to give it to you. Let me tell you something. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Keep this passage in context. Remember that Jesus is talking about the closing of the temple. He is talking about the losing of access to the Father. Have faith in God. And He says, if you pray and you ask that this mountain be cast into the sea, I want us to pause there and ask yourself, what mountain is he talking about? You might think to yourself, why is that important? It's a mountain. He's just using a picture. I don't believe he is. I want us to consider, you're near Jerusalem. There's not a lot of mountains in Jerusalem. They call them mountains. They're really more like hills. But specifically, they've went back to Bethany And they've come out. You remember where the fig tree was. They were leaving Bethany, going to Jerusalem, and they find the fig tree. Between Bethany and Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. It's very likely they're on the Mount of Olives. And it's possible that Jesus is saying, you see this mountain we're on? You you pray that it be cast into the sea and if you believe that, it'll happen. But I want to challenge your thinking again to say it's not the Mount of Olives. Because there's a second mount. A much more important mount. A mount that in just a couple of chapters. In chapter 13, Jesus is going to be setting on Mount Olive. He's going to be looking over to it, saying this mount will not be here in the future. No stone will be left on top. That's the temple mount. I believe that's what Jesus is talking about when He says if you pray that this mountain be cast into the sea, it'll happen. Because that's the exact message that they go on to preach. God has done away with this. He's done away with the written law of uh, uh, of the Old Testament. He has fulfilled it. And there is a new law in Christ. Paul especially is going to preach this message over and over again. He's saying, if you pray and you believe, God's going to do it. And it's going to happen. When I was 16 years old, 16 year old Kyle, he prayed and he believed. That he was going to get a 1969 Chevelle with a 454 for his first car in high school. He did not. He got a 1993 Nissan Quest minivan that his mother gave to him. When I was 20 years old, I would have settled instead of set for the 1969 454 Chevelle for the 1971 396 Chevelle that my father in law had. Still don't have that one. I wanted it, I believed that I could have it. I was like, I just really, really would like that. That's not what this passage is about. Am I saying, Am I saying that we shouldn't pray for things and expect to get them from God? That's not, I'm not saying that we should not do that. I'm saying let's keep this passage in context. Jesus is talking about forgiveness of sins. He's talking about the temple being removed and us still having access to God. And he says, if you believe that that can happen, and even if you pray that this mountain, this temple gets wiped out to the ground as if it was cast into the sea, it's gone, God will still do it. He will still find a way to give you forgiveness of your sins given that you forgive others. Now, I love when this happens here. When we sing songs that go along with the text, but especially when we have our Scripture reading that goes along with the text so well. If you were following along in our scripture reading, in Second Samuel sixteen, that's exactly the picture that David is portraying for us of someone who forgives so that he can be forgiven. If you remember, Shimei he comes out and he is. I'm in Second Kings, that's why that doesn't look familiar. Second Samuel sixteen, Shimei comes out and he is cursing David for something that he doesn't deserve. He's cursing him for the blood of Saul's family. David didn't do to Saul's family what happened to them. God did that. That was punishment on Saul's family because of his wickedness. And yet Shemia comes and he says, this is your fault, David. And he's throwing rocks at him and he's cursing him. And his, his right-hand man's like, hey, I'll cut this dog's head off right now. I don't even care. He has no right to disrespect you. He has no right. He is doing something to you and it would be just for me to lash back. And David says, don't. Because I do need forgiveness from God. Look at what's happening in my family. It's because of me. It's because of my wickedness. It's because of my sins. And so you don't do anything to Him because maybe by me enduring that, maybe God will forgive me. That's what happened in that passage. That's what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 11. He says, you have faith that God can do it without the temple. And you forgive others. To be forgiven, we must forgive. This is what the Jews are guilty of. Forgetting the weightier matters of the law. In the next couple of chapters, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to teach them, especially in some of the other Gospels, parables that are all regarding them. And how they have given up the, the, the kingdom. They have lost the kingdom. They have killed the son of the kingdom. And then in Matthew 23, he is going to spend an extensive amount of times pronouncing these woes upon them. Why? Because they had forgot the weightier matters like justice, mercy, and faith. God is closing the temple. God is closing access to the world to him, and he's opening another temple. Jesus Christ. And he is telling us, and his apostles are telling us that not only is Christ the temple, but we're that temple. Throughout the Corinthian letter, Paul is telling us that. In 1 Corinthians chapter three, dealing with these fighting Christians, he reminds them, "Do you not know that you are the building of God?" Look at verse nine. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so if we are His building, we are His temple, we need to be His house of prayer. And if that can be true for us today, that we can be that house of prayer that the world comes to find God, we find God, and the world comes to us to find God, find His forgiveness, if that can be true, it can also be true that we can be those who turn His house of prayer into a den of thieves. And we need to not do that. I hope we see the similarities in Mark chapter 11. I hope we see that there are similarities not only between that and the, and the Old Testament prophecies, but there are similarities between them and our lives today. We can be just as guilty as they were. And they were warned. The Lord is suddenly coming to His temple. You better be ready. You better be bearing fruit. And they were not. And we are warned. The Lord is coming again. It's going to be sudden. He's coming to save, and He's coming to judge. You better be ready. You better be bearing fruit. So, are you ready? How do you get ready? First, we become a part of the temple. We become a part of the house of prayer. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul reminds us that, that you are God's building, but he also tells us in verse 10, here's how you got to be that. By grace according to the teaching that was done on the foundation of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was saying there is no Christian who is a Christian today by their own strength, their own righteousness. This American dream of just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, that's not a Christian dream. He says you want to become a Christian, you rely on God's grace and you rely on the foundation, the teaching, the authority of the King, Jesus. Now, How do you do that? In John 14.1, Jesus told His followers, you believe in God, believe also in Me. And He taught His followers to teach others in Mark 16.16, 16, not just believing, but being baptized to find salvation. I hope that that's your desire today. To become a house of prayer. A place where God is seen in your lives and others can come to you to find God for themselves. But just becoming a house of prayer isn't the end of our walk. We have to continue to grow. And there's two things that will effectively stop that. And I'll give you these two things. The lesson will be yours. The first one is continuing in sin. When we come to Him believing that He is the Son of God and being baptized for the remission of our sins and yet continue to walk in that old way, we are making the blood of God, the blood of Christ of no use to us. There is only one way in to to His temple, to His kingdom. And that is through Christ. So Jesus is making it clear to us, if that is the case for us today, we need forgiveness. And to get that, you repent and you pray for forgiveness, but there's something that will hinder that and that's if you're not forgiving others. Are there people in your life today, are there people in your life that you are angry against? Are there people in your life that you are bitter against? When you go to your Heavenly Father in prayer, seeking forgiveness to yourself, you go to Him as a double-minded person that is seeking but not giving. Go to Him like David, forgiving this person for what they have done. If there's someone, if there's a brother, a sister in Christ, a family member, a loved one, a child, a spouse, a coworker, if there's someone in your life that needs your forgiveness, give it to them. That does not mean that you get rid of the requirements that God has for them. There are people that do terrible things and God is going to hold them accountable for that. But you can go to them and you can say, look, that's not right. What you've done against me was wrong. What Shimea did against David was wrong. But I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to hold on to the hatred between us. I'm going to let that go. Because this world has enough of that. It has enough hatred in it. It needs a little bit more of God's love. And if we would open that up, you see how we can be a house of prayer to the world. If we can help you with that this morning, I encourage you to come forward and let us know how as we stand and sing the song of invitation.